CEU Medieval Radio, Past Perfect, the talk show about medieval and early modern culture. Hello and welcome to Past Perfect, um, the CEU Medieval Radio's podcast on everything medieval and early modern. My name is Michal Mahalski and I'm joined here today by Eloy Sade, who joined uh, CEU's Medieval Department's faculty in 2021. She earned her PhD at Paris Sorbonne in 2011 with her thesis on Delimil's Chronicle and the beginning of the Czech national historiography in the vernacular language. After working at several research institutes in Prague, Frankfurt and Berlin, she led a research project on the Europe of the Luxembourg dynasty, governance, delegation and participation between region and empire, 1308 to 1437. Her ongoing Marie Skłodowska Curie Fellowship focuses on the emergence of the nation in Europe by comparing urbanized Brabant and feudal Bohemia between 1300 and 1450. Alice, it's very nice to have you here. My first question would be, most people, at least here in Central Europe, uh, first are told during the primary education that their nation is ancient and unchanging from Middle Ages to 21st century, only to learn uh, later that nationhood is modern, 19th century phenomenon. Is there then a medieval nation? And if so, how does it look like and how is it different from a modern state? Yes, you you are right. Um, in France too, we, we can observe that uh, the primary education tends uh, to create a false, uh, artificial, but also evident uh, continuity between the medieval populations and polities, uh, while uh, the university teaching and more generally academia uh, situates uh, the birth of nation and nationhood um, in the 19th century, so after the US and the French uh, revolutions. And this corresponds also to uh, an evolution in the, the field of the history of the uh, nation. The 19th century uh, marked, the be- marked the beginning of the uh, history as an uh, autonomous uh, discipline. And this period also corresponds to a set of political and social changes. It is the, the, the triumph, we can say, of the uh, nation state at that time. The nation uh, became the, the norm uh, in the organization, political and social, at least, organization. And everywhere uh, there we can observe in the 19th century uh, the, the use of history and of the ancienty uh, of the nations in order to consolidate these new states, we can say, uh, of the 19th century. And historians who were who also very, very often belong to the uh, bourgeoisie of that uh, time. So uh, the uh, uh, social category who profited from these changes at least contributed to to this. So you have really, uh, we can say, a a meeting of interest uh, at that time. And in the 70s of the 20th century, a change. Um, historians became aware of this manipulation, we can say. And, and so they realized that uh, this uh, history at least was conceived to serve uh, the consolidation of the state, state and that it was not the real history of the nation. And the medievalists began uh, to, uh, to be cautious about the concept of the nation, what is right. But at the same time, when we uh, look at the, the sources from uh, the medieval period, we can see that the nation already exists. I will have the, the opportunity to speak about that. And so that's why I'm working uh, on it. How then um, this idea of medieval nation manifested itself in medieval times, especially in the place that is at the center of your research interest, mm. mainly the domains of the Luxembourg dynasty and of the most important, but perhaps uh, not as widely known, ruling families of high and late Middle Ages? 
first, for our listeners' sake, uh, who are Luxembourgs and uh, oh, where okay. do they come from? Uh, this is an important question because we will speak many times about them. So the Luxembourg, Luxembourg was the uh, ruling din- dynasty of the county of Luxembourg, which is a small county uh, between uh, actual Belgium, uh, France and Germany. And uh, so this family exists from the uh, 10th uh, century, but uh, it, became, it became important when it succeeded in uh, unifying the county uh, under its rule, so at the uh, uh, 12th, uh, 13th century. And uh, yes, it was very important at, uh, at that time. They became a very important family competing with the Brabantine dynasty, which was also were competing uh, for the control of the, the trade routes uh, between the two major uh, rivers, so Meuse and uh, Rhine. And and in 1288, the um, Duke of Brabant, John uh, I, was uh, victorious on the, the count of, of Luxembourg, but still with so this was an important moment in the history of the, the Luxembourg dynasty because all the uh, the, the count uh, died at that time uh, and uh, a lot of his brothers died also. So it was a moment of, of trouble for, for the county, for the dynasty, but still the, the bonds with the kings of France was very, very, very uh, important. So Henri VII then uh, is ruling uh, after Henri VI uh, at the end of the 13th century. And he had been educated at the court of uh, Philippe le Bel, the king of France. And this family had also the support of Clement V. So it's very interesting because when you look at this family, it looks like it's a small county, but at least it was this family that has the intersection of uh, of many countries and many powers and was had many many uh, links to many uh, families. And when Albert the uh, first of Habsburg died in. 13-8. It was not difficult, at least, for Henry the uh, Sevens to be elected. So, as I said, he had the support of Pope Clement V. And among the electors for the dignity uh, of the, the King of the Romans, uh, you had his brother, uh, Baudouin uh, of Luxembourg, who was Archbishop uh, of Trier, and Peter of Aspelt, his advisor, who was also Archbishop of Mainz. So, at least, they had they were not so important, but they had very, very good connections. And at that time, they also represented an alternative to the Habsburgs. So at least all the electors agreed to elect Henry VII, uh, the new uh, king of the Romans. And it was a very important step in uh, the history of that uh, dynasty. Right. So Henry VII became the king of the Romans, but he comes from the dynasty uh, whose holdings are primarily located by Rhine, near the Brabant, and uh, your thesis and a lot of your research focuses on Bohemia, mm-hmm. right, which is on completely other side of the empire. So maybe you can tell us how do the Luxembourgs come to rule in Bohemia, mm-hmm. and what's the, what was the sociopolitical situation there at the time? This election, Henry VII was elected the king of the Roman. It represented a, a new configuration of empire, and it was a very important spe- step, as I said, for the Luxembourg dynasty. At the same time, in uh, Bohemia, occurred the succession uh, crisis. The last premier lead, uh, Wenceslas III, died. He had been assassinated, uh, and he, ha- he died uh, without descent uh, in 1306. And Albert uh, of Habsburg, who was still the king of the Roman at that time, instated uh, his son Rodolf uh, as the new king. But he died, the Rodolf uh, died very soon, and after his uh, unexpected death in 1307, uh, his successor, Henry of Carencia, 
had proven unable to create unanimity and to rule the kingdom. And the important problem was that he was also all the time uh, requiring uh, the help uh, of foreign princes like uh, the Margrave of Meissen. So it generated uh, a lot of troubles in Bohemia. And the Czech uh, abbots and lords then decided to negotiate with uh, Henry VII in order to find a solution. And they decided together to uh, elect John, the, the son, uh, so Henry VII's son, the new king of Bohemia. It's a very important moment because this situation was the, the opportunity to stage at least the, the sense of the nation and the need to protect its integrity from the part uh, of, of the Czech abbots. This reaction against uh, Henry de Carincia was justified as really the need to make something to protect the integrity uh, of Bohemia um, because of this permanent uh, intrusion of foreign forces in the country. So it was the justification. And this Negotiations between uh, Henry VII and uh, the Czech delegation uh, very well illustrate, again, the meeting of many perspectives and interests. The Czech historiography uh, traditionally opposes Henry VII and Albert's of Habsburg behaviors. In reality, both intervened as kings of the Romans and the suzerains of the Czechs. But the difference is that Albert used uh, the first to instead his son uh, in 136, while Henry of Luxembourg benefited from the nobles and abbots initiative. And so Henry uh, had to make some uh, concessions. He would have preferred to send uh, his brother, Valeron, as king of uh, Bohemia, but the Czechs objected. They wanted Rosa to have his son because they thought that uh, as a young man, it would be easier to uh, manipulate him. And the newly elected king of Bohemia, John, uh, had to accept many demands from the, the nobility in the form of the uh, inaugural diplomas. For instance, he had to name only Czechs to the principal offices and as members uh, of uh, his council. And what I would like to point uh, concerning this negotiation is that it's very well illustrated uh, how two groups, two powers, we can say, which didn't have the same view, could at least at that moment converge. Huh? Henry, at least, Henry Stevens, also he had to make some concessions. He acted as the king of the Romans, as uh, the uh, suzerain of the Czechs. And the Czechs could also say that they at least elected their new king, when in reality, the decision uh, came from the king of the Roman. But it, it gave some foundation to the nobility, which at that moment uh, decided to formalize its uh, position in the decision-making uh, and also to embody the nation. So speaking about Bohemian nobility, I believe that one of the texts you're an expert on, the Dalimil Chronicle, is a very important contemporary source on the position in which Bohemian nobles found themselves at the dawn of the 14th century. So can you tell us more about how this source illustrates uh, this position? What is this about and what makes it interesting? Yes, the Dalimis Chronicle is the first chronicle written in Czech, so that's a very important moment for um, the construction of the Czech identity. And it's also the second uh, literary text after the Alexandrida, which uh, is an adaptation of uh, the uh, Alexander romances by uh, Guillaume de Chatillon and uh, Ulrich uh, von Elsenbach. The author is anonymous, but I, we 
still uh, uh, call him uh, Dalimil. And it seems, so he appears like, like a very well-educated person. He had maybe a clerical uh, education. But what is clear is that he uh, really embodies the interests of the Czech nobility. Uh, this text uh, was written around uh, 1309-1310. And the last chapter ends uh, with the advent of John of Luxembourg. So this moment I just described. And it um, recalls uh, all the whole history of the country from the beginnings. That means uh, from the, the late and the foundation legends of uh, Bohemia. And it also connects uh, the history of Bohemia with biblical events. And yes, it was written during this uh, context of permanent instability under John of Carinthia. Yeah, this context seems to have been the, the impulse for writing the, this chronicle, and especially a moment uh, in uh, 1309 when the burghers uh, of Prague and Kutnahora, the two main cities uh, of uh, Bohemia, Uh, coordinated their action and kidnapped uh, the main leaders of uh, the Czech nobility. So the upper class of the bourgeoisie at that time hoped to gain some political recognition from this uh, maneuver, this kidnapping. Uh, their enterprises failed, but it materialized the, the force of this group. This kidnapping of the, the main Czech nobles appears to have been uh, the impulse for uh, writing for Danimil. Because in his message, Uh, of Dalimil, uh, two, uh, we, can, uh, we, we can see two uh, major preoccupations, the rise of the German bourgeoisie and the absolutist uh, tendencies of the king's power. Bohemia had become a kingdom in 1198, and according to Dalimil, this marked a considerable uh, break. According to him, the king ceased at that moment uh, to govern with the, the nobility, And the nobility became lazy and abandoned their uh, duties. And uh, yes, what is interesting in Dalimil's message is that he's connecting uh, different elements together, according to him. So you have this break because the, the duke became a king, so he's not anymore the uh, primus inter pares. The nobility is not, not working with him. The king is favoring the Germans. The, the German community is growing because of the uh, arriving of uh, German in the, the context of uh, the so-called German colonization. And And this bourgeoisie is competing uh, with, with uh, the nobility. And as the nobility is becoming weak, uh, it, it is not able to, uh, to react. And so Dalimil, uh, Dalimil's chronicle is an appeal to the nobility to be aware uh, of uh, its duty and uh, to uh, act in order to preserve the integrity of the country. Is this the reason why it is written in Czech? Yes, it is connected with the rise of uh, this German community in Bohemia. And at that point, it's important to recall also the linguistic situation of Bohemia. Because the, the first uh, vernacularization did not occur in Czech, but in German. And it's something which is still today problematic. Uh, this German-written uh, literature is quite forgotten or is not so is not um, presented as so important as it was but yes in the, during the 13th century Prague had become one of the most flourishing centers of uh, German culture under Premisol Autocar II but also then uh, under Wenceslas II uh, who uh, himself uh, wrote several poems uh, in German And uh, Ulrich von Etzenbach, for example, one of the most important German uh, writers of that time, wrote his Alexander uh, at the court of uh, Przemysl Otokar II. So 
that's, uh, that's something very important. Bohemia was a part of the Holy Empire, and the Turin culture was the dominating culture. Um, many uh, Czech noble families had Germanized their name to follow the, this new fashion. Rosenberg, for example, like Rosenberg or Lemberg, huh, they took some German name. And it's interesting that Dalimil in his chronicle is used Czech instead of German uh, name. For instance, he calls uh, the, the lords of uh, Lemberg uh, the lords of uh, Jablone or uh, the lords of Falkenstein, Smezejice. So he's trying to change with this uh, reality. And uh, yes, through uh, his chronicle, Dalimil aims uh, at putting an end to this tendency, this fashion of the German language. And yes, language is a perfect tool for him to invalidate this situation and mainly the German community. To illustrate that, that it's important to signalize that Dalimil even uses the word Yazik, the tongue language, to refer to the nation. Although the Latin tradition in Bohemia had so far preferred the word nacio to lingua. If you look at uh, the Latin chronicles, which were written before uh, Dalimil uh, wrote uh, his uh, one. And for Dalimil, the language uh, and the community of speakers are one and the same. And those who do not speak it, so the Germans in Bohemia, uh, are excluded from so the Yazik, the, the nation, and even by the name that refers to, na- to them, because in Slavic uh, languages, as you know, the word which designates Germans, or Niemcy, uh, was made from the, the word uh, Niemi, which means a silent. So you, you really, really, really see that uh, even by the use of the words, the Germans have to be uh, silent in the uh, Czech nation. That's very interesting. Yeah. So how do those Germans who find themselves outside of the nation or tongue created by Dalimil react to said nation? Uh, do they try to prove their belonging or propose some counter-narratives? Yes, uh, they reacted to that. They are directly to Dalimil. We can mention uh, two translations of Dalimil's chronicle. One made uh, during between uh, 1330, uh, 1346, and the second one written in 1444. But occurring in Dalimil's writing context, the first one is very interesting because his author made a lot of changes in his tradition. It changed uh, the vocabulary in a systematic way. In the Old Czech original, all Germans, whether they are from Bohemia or not, are referred to as uh, Niemcy, uh, so Germans. And Dalimil did not recognize the identity and existence of the so-called German-Bohemian community, which at that time very strongly existed. However, uh, the Germans living uh, in Bohemia were not considered as foreigners by their contemporaries. So you have really a different situation between uh, Dalimil's view and what was the reality. And being German-Bohemian uh, uh, himself, the author of the Rhyme Translation introduced a distinction between the two groups. And depending on the situation he translated, so the passages he translated, the word Yemtsi was translated as Tuchin, uh, for the Deutsch uh, Böhmen, uh, so these Germans from Bohemia, and as Fremd, foreign, in the case of Germans coming from abroad. So here you have the ethnical aspect, but Dalimil also wanted to invalidate also in a social way this uh, German community, and he, he used, for, in, for example, indistinctly uh, the word hlap, Hlapove in plural, peasants, to designate all uh, the non-nobles, and this word had a very pejorative connotation. And again, the translator does not simply translate uh, chlap by peasant, but when it's the case uh, by burgin, that means burger, when the narrative clearly deals with burgers. So it doesn't uh, accept this categorization imposed by uh, Dalimil. And through 
this translation, the German community of Bohemia wanted to be recognized as a community of burghers, different from the German from abroad and also from the peasants. Huh? And so as a legitimate part of the whole community of France, deserved to get some political participation and not condemned to be uh, silent. Was it a popular work among the German burghers? Uh, it's difficult to know. I must say that uh, here we don't have uh, enough um, documents to uh, trace that. But maybe it was, uh, as a second translation was written uh, one century after, maybe there was this memory of a first translation which had been done and the need of adapt the message in order to replace the German community in the Czech lands. I would like to return a little bit to Luxembourg's mm -hmm. and their domain which stretches, of course, outside of Bohemia as well. Do you see similar processes of uh, nation-building in other parts? What are the local differences and what stays the same? Yes, it's very interesting to come back to the, the Luxembourg domain because these domains are at least composed, what we can call uh, a composite monarchy. Composite monarchies were uh, the most common type of state in the pre-modern uh, era, and they encompassed uh, different countries and populations which conserved their rules, their laws, their uh, languages, uh, etc. So it was a patchwork of uh, different polities, at least under the uh, dominion of, so in this case, uh, the king of the Romans or the emperor. And these uh, composite monarchies traditionally seen as an of the development uh, of the national idea conform conformly to the requirement of congruence, uh, identity between a polity and an ethnicity, according to Ernst Gellner, which is for him the requirement to have a nation. However, the Holy Empire, so here the Luxembourg domains, uh, seems to have been uh, an incubator of national sentiment. Uh, the coexistence between uh, its imperial political culture and a fragmented territorial structure generated a strong desire uh, for national assertiveness from the empire and the need to keep uh, other nations born from the same process uh, at bay. Uh, so at least each polity in, inside the empire wants to recuperate, to appropriate with imperial culture, and it, um, it gives birth to nations, but all these nations experience the same process, and at least by this competition, try to assert themselves, so against the, the other nations, but also inside. So we, we can really observe in this domain other situations, so uh, observe the development of uh, national uh, rhetoric, the different the local privileges against a foreign uh, ruler in the Duchy of Luxembourg. So we, we don't have such texts like uh, the Dynamics Chronicle in the Duchy of Luxembourg, but uh, in the charters or in some deliberation, the idea of a, a Luxembourgish community uh, nation is developed huh, in order to protect some privileges. And what is in, in, interesting in such processes is not because you could say, yes, it's a rhetoric to defend some privileges, but at least by repeating always the same formula, yeah, some definition of the community and of national sense, responsibility, uh, still uh, at least exists. And these processes, these very like progressive processes are very uh, interesting. But in my work, I uh, rather compare the situation in Bohemia with the, that uh, in Brabant, because here you have also the development of vernacular literature. So it's uh, it can be co compared to uh, the situation in Bohemia. And in Brabant, the, the power of the towns had been strengthened uh, by the pre 
privileges uh, granted by Duke Henry II and Henry III in the 13th century. So you have also, like in Bohemia, you have this nobility which is empowering. A similar uh, process in Brabant is occurring, but it concerns the towns in this case. In 1312, uh, John II issued the Charter of Kortenberg. So I won't go in the details of this text. It was at a moment also of troubles uh, because he knew that he, he was sick and he knew that uh, uh, his son uh, would have problem to rule because he was, he was also very young. So you have, like in Bohemia, uh, the, the central power uh, is challenged and he needed the, um, the support uh, of the town. So he issued this Charter of Kortenberg and provided through this charter for the establishment of a permanent council of control in which the urban representatives would have uh, the majority. So like in Bohemia, uh, you have uh, structural changes. Uh, So the towns are very strong at that moment, but they need to consolidate this situation. And like in Bohemia, in Brabant, you have also the coexistence of two uh, languages. The Flemish is the uh, common language spoken by uh, the population, but the French is also the language uh, the, of the domina- dominating culture. So the, the change was not so radical like in Bohemia, because in Bohemia, uh, the, the writing of the Alexandreida and the uh, Dalimis Chronicle was a radical break. With, with uh, what uh, occurred before, uh, the change was more progressive uh, in uh, Brabant. But yes, we can really observe a progressive intensification in uh, writing uh, in Flemish. And at the same time, uh, so you, you have in, uh, in Bohemia, uh, the chronicles, the chronicle, the Dalimis chronicle, which was written in order to support the project of the nobility, and at the same time, the uh, chronicle of uh, Jan van Bundal, so the Brabant Suggestion, written in order to support this new uh, situation, this advent of the towns in the duchy of Brabant. And what is here very interesting for me is that, and it's uh, why I decided to dedicate uh, a project and uh, monograph to this comparison is that you, you can see that you have two groups which are traditionally uh, presented as very different, so nobility in uh, Bohemia and uh, the towns in Brabant, but at least they are using the same processes. Uh, and here, in concerning the context, they are also profiting from this very similar situation. And yes, then they are, they are using vernacular writing in order to present themselves as uh, the defensors of an oppressed population, uh, oppressed by elites, which are using a foreign language. And so that, and through that, they are presenting themselves as the defensor uh, of the nation. Uh, so that at least what we want is to consolidate their power. But you have all this construction in order to uh, realize that. And in two countries with different, we, we, can, we can say that they are really very different. Uh, Brabant is a very urbanized uh, country. The, the Bohemia is uh, marked by the domination of the, uh, domi- the, the nobility. So two uh, radically different countries, polities, but at least the same mechanisms are used by these two uh, different groups. So circling back to where we started, what would you think we should see medieval nation as? What is medieval nation then? So maybe I will be a little bit provocative. I would say that medieval nation is not so 
different uh, <laughs> as actual nation. So I'm provocating when, when I'm saying that. But what is important is that the medieval nation is an imagined uh, community. Uh, we have to be aware of that. So I'm quoting here Anderson. Uh, and that means that it's a constructed project. The nation does not exist for itself. And here we, we, we had, for instance, these two literary projects uh, by Dalimil and by Bundal, uh, so in Bohemia and in Brabant. And it is a representation, another um, representation by a given community. Uh, so, and here, so the Czechs or uh, the Brabantines. But what is important is that here we are aware of these processes of construction, but nations present themselves as natural. And here I would like to quote Susan Reynolds, who wrote that nations are natural, given objectively uh, existing uh, human communities, each of which is assumed not only to have its own common culture, myth, history, and destiny, but also to be, and it is very important, a political community with a right to what is called self-determination. Uh, so the, the medieval nation was already political, and it's something which is going to be very important, in which uh, the traditional historiography tended to for forget or to uh, avoid. The, the tendency was to uh, resume the medieval nation to only cultural, uh, historical, uh, identical elements, so that is at least ethnicity, and all these sources on the contrary, show how uh, the medieval nation was already very political. It was already an instrumentalization for some groups to get power. But in doing so, these groups diffused the idea of nation and at least imposed a kind of definition of uh, the nation. The nation is also based uh, on a strong belief in its objectivity. So the belief is, um, is something which is also very important to define the nation. It's not only these different elements, so that is these cultural, uh, ethnical, and political elements, but it's also you have to create a belief. The nation exists because some individuals decided to identify uh, in it. And here, that is why uh, these political aspects are so important. Uh, the, the nation is a project that had, has to be uh, attracting, and it works only if it, it involves uh, the individuals. And that's why also an, uh, another very important element to defend the medieval nation is the camaraderie, to take also a word uh, used by Anderson, and this idea that the different individuals are not anymore only uh, subjects, but also a part of the decision-making. And that's why the medieval nation is fundamentally political. This doesn't sound as alien to us as we would imagine. Thank you very much for this very thought-provoking discussion. I hope to see you soon. Thank you very much. <laughs>